Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Live Through Jesus podcast with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, Temptation, Being Faithful, and God's Intention for Marriage. This is the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Quickly before we get started, if you're new to Live Through Jesus, make sure you go to livethroughjesus.com and sign up to receive your free five-week Bible study over Abraham. There you'll also find blog posts that coincide with the teachings on this podcast and social media links, which is another way to keep in touch throughout the week. Okay, let's get started. So, when my daughter was little, she went through what a lot of kids go through of being scared at night. And she wanted me to stay with her until she fell asleep, which was never a short time. And so, then began the process of teaching her how to change her thoughts. And so, because she knew there was really nothing to be afraid of, I told her, Instead of thinking about things that make you afraid, that probably are never going to happen, think about something good. Think about something that makes you happy. Think about butterflies. Then I went on to say, you know, talk about the butterflies and how they would flutter along the ground where all the pretty flowers were. And and so I told her, you know, put that picture in your mind. Beautiful flowers, all different colors, butterflies fluttering around on the ground. And just keep thinking about that. And if the scary thoughts come into your mind, say, no, I know those things aren't even probably going to happen. I'm not even going to think about that. I'm going to think about butterflies. And then put your mind back on it, right? And so obviously it's not that easy because we all still do this as adults, but it's a good process for us to learn. And it was a continuous process of trying to teach my kids how to change their thoughts And I'm still having to do that to myself today. As a matter of fact, I tell myself, uh, think about butterflies every time that I'm thinking about something that I know I shouldn't be. And obviously, I don't think about butterflies, but it's my cue to say, hey, Courtney, stop thinking about that. Think of something better. And this is something biblical. So I want to read you this scripture. This is Philippians 4, 8, and it says, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things. And so that as an adult is what we have to do. It's like stop thinking about that and think about one of these things. Now, I tell you this because our thoughts can not only torment us, but they can lead us to do things that we shouldn't do. And so today, as we talk about the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, we're going to look first in the Old Testament at the command and the ways that they dealt with adultery back in those days, which is strange and interesting both. So Hopefully, you'll find it that way also. And then we're going to move into the New Testament where Jesus, just like he did with murder, gets to the heart of the matter. And here is where he tells us, hey, change your thoughts. That's what matters. And so that's why I wanted y'all to have that in your mind as we're going through this lesson. Now, I need to tell you two things before we get started. One 
if you are listening with children, you probably don't want to because the nature of this lesson is not really kid friendly. And then the second thing that I want you to know is if you or your spouse have been unfaithful in the past, if divorce has touched your family, do not turn this podcast off. You will find encouragement here. So let's go ahead and get started. In Exodus 20, 14, and then also in Deuteronomy 5, 18, the seventh commandment says, do not commit adultery. And so our faithfulness to our spouse is very important to God. He wants us to honor our promises and he wants us to honor our marriage. In Hebrews 13, 4, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And so the sacred union of marriage and family were established by God from the very beginning. And they were meant to be a blessing to us forever. And it's the foundation of society. And it also mirrors our relationship with God. And so that's why the marriage relationship is so important because everything stems from the family. And ultimately it helps us understand our relationship with God We may or may not get to that part of it today. We may have to do this lesson in two parts. I'm not really sure. But the second part of it, we will be talking about how marriage is the physical manifestation of the church's relationship with God. And so first, before we go into all of those things, I want to address the Old Testament. And so after God gave this command to Moses, he knew they were going to be going into their new land and setting up their government. And so this was a blueprint of how to form and legislate and judge their laws. And so, like I said, I hope you find these things interesting. They're strange. The first thing is Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 29 says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lays with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both to the gate of the city and they shall be stoned to death with stones. The young woman, because she didn't cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She's committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and he seizes her, and he lies with her, and they are found... Then the man who lays with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he's violated her. He may not divorce her all of his days. And then in Exodus twenty-two seventeen, it expands on that last part and it says, if a father utterly refuses to give his daughter to him, then he shall still pay the man the bride price and just not receive her. That's the father's payment for this man violating his daughter. So 
This is explaining that if there's consensual sex outside of marriage, so if a man cheats on his wife or she cheats on her husband or both of them, or if a man sleeps with a woman that is betrothed to be married but hasn't gotten married yet, then both of these people should die if it's done in a place where we can make sure that it wasn't rape. Where if the woman yelled, somebody would know it. And so she apparently didn't yell and it was a consensual act. If it was done out in the middle of nowhere and she could have possibly screamed and hollered and nobody knows one way or the other, then all of the man is put to death because we don't know whether it was rape or not. But he obviously did something wrong either way. We know that he did. And so the punishment was death. Now, if the woman was not married and not engaged to be married and she slept with a man, then they were to get married. After she slept with one man, she's not ever supposed to sleep with another man. No other man is going to want to marry her. And so sleeping with a man that isn't your husband is considered adultery, someone that you don't marry, even if it's before you're married. This brings great commitment, right? Uh, you can't just sleep with somebody and then move on. If you want to sleep with somebody that's trying to show the gravity of this and let you know, you know, you better be ready to make a commitment. You better be ready to pay the price for and keep her as your wife forever. Now, after the wedding night, very interesting ceremony begins. If after the wedding night, the man suspects that the woman is not a virgin, then he can bring charges against her to the elders. And the only way that she can be acquitted of these charges is for her family to bring the bed sheets from the wedding night and show that she was definitely a virgin. If the man was found to be lying, then he's whipped as a punishment and then he has to stay married to this woman forever. He also has to pay her dad a fee for taining their family. Now, if the woman is found to have slept with another man, then the punishment is the same as if she had committed adultery while she was with him because it was adultery if she had slept with another man and didn't marry him. And so she was put to death. This whole story is found in Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 21, and I just didn't read all of it. But in 21, it says the reason that she's put to death is because she has done this outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. And so you should purge the evil from among you. This is a deterrent, basically. We were never meant to be with more than one person. Only death can break the bond and release a person to remarry. If because of the hardness of someone's heart, a couple does divorce and then they get remarried while their spouse is still alive, then they're committing adultery in that situation also. Because again, they're supposed to be being faithful to just that one person that you're married to. And divorcing them doesn't free them from that faithfulness. They cannot live with that person anymore, but that's the only person that they're supposed to sleep with until that person dies. Then they're free to remarry. Now, if by chance they do get remarried, then they can never go back to the first spouse because their unfaithfulness has basically been solidified. And so they can't go back to that spouse. 
All of these things are explained in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, Romans 7, 2 and 3, and 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, if you want to go look those up for yourself. But I'm summarizing so we don't have to read so much. Now, let me say, if you have already gotten a divorce and you're remarried, remember, Anybody that has slept with another person before they got married is also considered an adulterer or an adulteress. And so you're in the same boat as a lot of people. And it would be wrong for you just because you have already divorced and remarried to now divorce that spouse because you had done something wrong. And remember, you're not supposed to go back to your first spouse anyway. Much of the time, we're unaware that this is a law especially the remarriage thing that is not preached a lot these days. And so you could have done this unknowingly or knowingly. Either way, you're in the same boat as all the rest of the people that slept with other people that they were not married to at the time or have slept with more than one person. So if you're in that situation, you can't change the past. Just be faithful to the person that you're married to now and move forward and do what you know God wants from you from this point. And then as we continue studying, you're going to see even more what Jesus says whenever he gets to the heart. And hopefully that's also encouraging to you. Because again, we cannot all live up to the standards that God has for us. We're all lawbreakers. And that's why Jesus had to give his life as a ransom for us. So. No reason to get bogged down here. Let's just keep moving on. And hopefully you'll continue to be encouraged no matter what your situation is. Okay, so those are the rules for a woman who slept with someone before she was married. But what if her husband suspects that she is sleeping with someone while they're married? What happens? And he doesn't catch her. He's just suspicious. This is the strangest custom of all. If he thought that his wife was cheating, he was to bring her to the elders along with an offering of barley and oil. And this was called the offering of remembrance. It was supposed to call to mind the sin that she has committed if she has committed a sin. And so the husband would explain his suspicions to the priest. And then he would take some of the holy water from the tabernacle and then put some of the dust from the floor of the tabernacle in the water. Now, by taking these two things from the tabernacle that were holy, it would symbolize the holy God that dwelt in that place as the only one that could judge purity. And so they would, he would get the dust and put it in the water and then they would uncover the woman's head and let her hair down. This is to show humility and the uncovering of her sin or possible sin. And then the priest would explain to her that if she has sinned, then she'll be cursed. And if she is, has not sinned, then she will be exonerated. And then he writes the curse down on a stone tablet. And he reads it off to her and she says, yes, I understand this and I agree to all of this. And then he takes uh, something and scrapes the words that he just wrote on the stone off into the water, stirs it up, and she is 
to drink this water. So all of the holy things plus the words of this curse. And so this is like drinking in her sin, right? Very, very strange. And then what would happen is if she had sinned, it says that her womb would swell and her thigh would rot. And so what this means is that basically her womb would open and become hollow, which basically means it will not be able to hold children. And your thigh rotting was basically symbolizing your reproduction. And so he's basically saying you would no longer be able to bear children. This is because the woman is the one, if she cheats, she may be carrying another man's baby. And this husband does not know whether it's his or someone else's. There were no DNA tests back then. And so because he couldn't trust her to make sure that his, that any baby she had from that point on would be his, God made sure she would never have any children again. Now, Presumably, this exposed her as an adulteress, and she would also be put to death, although nothing is said about that in this passage. Maybe he just divorces her because later on we find out that adultery was one exception for divorce if the two parties couldn't be reconciled. And so maybe he just put her away, and then nobody else wanted her either, and that was her punishment, and he got to remarry, or maybe she was put to death. We're not sure. But how strange this custom is, right, that they would be able to reveal her hidden sin in this way. This let her know that even if she thinks she's hidden her sin, God knows what she's done. And, you know, it's the same for us. And so just as a little side note, I want us to talk a little bit about hidden sin, especially as it pertains to unfaithfulness. Because God has a way of either exposing our sin, bringing it to light, or making it just eat us up inside until we repent. Psalm 32, 1 through 5 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and I didn't cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity and my sin. And so this is showing us that we want our sins covered, but we want them covered by the blood of the Lamb. We want them covered by Jesus' sacrifice. We do not want them covered in our way of hiding. Because this psalmist says, which we assume is David, he says that whenever he was hiding his sins, God's hand was heavy on him. He just felt the weight of his sins and he could no longer bear them. And so finally he confessed and repented them and then God forgave him and he was free of those things. And so God doesn't make his hand heavy on us to make us feel guilty or ashamed. He does it so that we will repent and be forgiven of our sins and that we can move on and not feel the weight of them anymore. 
and also obviously quit committing that sin. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11 says, Now I rejoice, not that I made you sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And so, Repentance is crucial in our relationship with God, and it's crucial in our relationship to others, especially when it involves betrayal and unfaithfulness. And so once it's been brought to light, the unfaithfulness has been brought to light, then the healing can begin. It's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be easy. But until everything is out in the open, your relationship will suffer. There is zero question about that. This union between you and your spouse has been broken, whether they know it or not. They consciously probably feel it. But even if they don't know what you've done, the union's been broken. And so there can't be repair until it's brought to light, confessed, and there's been repentance. Betrayal is hard to overcome, but with God's help, you can find forgiveness, restoration, healing, even joy and strength in your relationship again. It can be made completely whole and stronger than ever before. God can make that happen, but first, the hidden sin has to be revealed and we have to turn away from the guilty party. Listen to this. This is the most encouraging verse. If you find yourself in this situation, this is the most encouraging verse. This is Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. This is talking about Jesus. God has anointed Jesus to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So if you happen to find yourself in this situation in your marriage, know that God has sent Jesus to heal the brokenhearted, to set you free from the prison of your sin or that of your spouse, that he will comfort you and that he will bring beauty for the ashes, that he will make something beautiful out of what you feel has been dead and destroyed. You can feel joy again. He can repair and rebuild the ruins. Everything that you think has been ruined with this, it doesn't have to be. He can repair it and build it up again. And the next time it can be even stronger than before. So let that be your encouragement. If your marriage has been affected by the sin of adultery, 
don't lose heart. God can repair. He does not want us to live in hidden sin. He does not want our union to stay broken. He wants to repair it. Okay, so that's all the Old Testament stuff. Now we're going to move to the New Testament. Just as Jesus holds believers to a high standard when it comes to murder, he also does the same thing with adultery. Our actions definitely matter, but Jesus also knows and is concerned about the heart. And so in Matthew 5, 27 to 32, he says, this is the New King James Version. He says, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you, for one of your members to perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it is said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who's divorced also commits adultery. So, let's break this down a little bit. The word here for lust literally means to set your heart or mind on. And so that's why he talks about the eyes. It starts with a look. The second that you look at someone and you're like, ooh, I'm interested a little bit in that person for whatever reason. If you see, just like I was saying before about changing our thoughts, if you're like, yeah, but I'm not going to go there, and then you just move on, or you change your thought from that person to the loveliness of your spouse, the things that you are thankful for about them, the things that you love about them, and you begin to put that picture in your mind, however you go about it. But if you don't do that, you don't change your thoughts, and you see somebody, and then you can't get them out of your mind, and you begin to have feelings for them, setting your heart on them. That's what that word lust meant, setting your heart or mind on them. If you set your heart or your mind on them and they're not your spouse, then you're sinning. And so that's where changing our thoughts comes around. Instead, set your mind and your heart on your spouse. And because this is a sin, God is saying, the reason that Jesus says, you know, to pluck your eye out or to cut off your hand. He's not actually telling us to, you know, damage parts of our body. What he's trying to demonstrate to us is that anything that we see or feel that causes us to sin, we need to remove. So the moment that that thought or feeling comes to us, we have to dismiss it, change our thoughts. Our temptations grow into action if we entertain them. And so Jesus is trying to, by saying, you know, pluck out your eye or cut off your hand, he's trying to explain to you that physical, temporary, emotional loss and pain, those things are much better than permanent, eternal, spiritual pain and loss, right? 
And those are things that we can experience if we set our minds and hearts on the wrong thing. And so we're setting ourselves up for failure when we entertain these thoughts or these feelings that might be sin and then think we're not going to act on them. But how much harder is it to stop yourself after you've gotten to that point? That was the same thing, you know, that I would tell my daughter. It's the same thing I tell myself when I'm laying in bed and I'm worrying and worrying and worrying. The longer you let your mind think on those things, the harder it is to make it stop. You've imagined a million things in your mind by this point and you can't get them out of your head. But if at the very second that it happens, you say, "Mm -mm, not doing that, I'm going to go to a different spot, then you're much better off. So this is one reason why Jesus is like, stop it before it goes too far. Do not set your mind or your heart on something that is wrong. This goes for anything, not just adultery. Just so happens that he's using this example here for cheating on our spouses, but it doesn't have to be that. And so I want to read a few verses about adultery and then changing our hearts and our minds. The first one is Proverbs 6, 24, all the way to 35. And it says, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, don't desire her beauty in your heart. And don't let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not get burned? Or can he walk on hot coals and his feet not get scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her goes unpunished. People don't despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he'll pay sevenfold and he'll give all the goods of his house. But he who commits adultery lacks sense. And he who does this destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he won't spare when he takes revenge. He'll accept no compensation. and so. This is talking not about God. God will forgive. God can wipe away our disgrace. This is Solomon giving instructions to his son. And he's trying to say to him, hey, a man can forgive you for, you know, taking something that belongs to him as long as it's not his wife. (laughs) And if it's his wife, you're going to pay. And then he gives this scenario. He says, you know, don't think that you can play with fire and not get burned. You may think, hey, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's okay to just do this or that. And it's going to grow and you're going to get burned. And so he's trying to tell his son the same thing that Jesus is trying to say. Stop it before it starts. And a man (laughs) may not forgive, especially if he doesn't have God in his life and God isn't able to forgive him. But God will. God will forgive us. But obviously that doesn't mean that we want to just willingly go do whatever knowing that God will forgive us. There are wounds to us and to our marriage and to that person's marriage when we cheat. And so this is just trying to explain, don't think that you can do this and it not lead to adultery. Don't think that you can hide it, whatever. You're going to eventually suffer the consequences of that. Now, this is Joshua 1, 8, and this is just talking about the things that we need to, that we do need to think about. He says, 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Those are pretty good promises. God's basically just saying, you're going to be way better off if you follow these laws than if you don't. And then Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And so God says, you know, your heart will lead you to the wrong place. Do not trust it. That whole follow your heart thing, it's a problem waiting to happen. (laughs) We can't trust our heart. Our feelings will deceive us. And so he says, I know what's in your heart. I know what's in your mind. And I'll count those things the same as deeds. And so beware of your thoughts and your feelings. Don't trust them. And then James 1, 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted that he's being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And he says, so it'll grow and it'll grow and it'll grow. Starts with a temptation. If you give in to that. It will multiply. So that's Jesus's teaching on just stop it before you ever even get to that act. You may think that, oh, well, I didn't do it, so it's okay. But here's the issue. Most likely, if you keep thinking on it, you will do it. If you don't, it's going to be real, real, real hard to stop yourself later. And on top of all that, people may not know it because you may not have done it, but God knows. And so in your heart, you've done it. And so he says, don't even go there. Now, on the subject of divorce, when Jesus entered the town of Korea, the Pharisees approached him and asked him about divorce, hoping that they would trick him into either contradicting Moses or contradicting Herod Antipas, which was over that area. Now, Herod had married his brother's wife. And John the Baptist had spoken out against him. And John the Baptist had actually been beheaded because of this. And so the Pharisees thought that they could trap Jesus by making him either say that divorce was fine so that he wouldn't get his head chopped off. And then he would be in trouble with all of the Jews because he would be contradicting Moses. Or they would get him to contradict Herod and agree with the Jews And then Herod would be angry with him and possibly kill him. And either way, they were going to sow division in one way or the other. But Jesus, being all-knowing and wise, didn't fall into their trap. So this is Matthew 19, and it says in verse 3, They asked him if it was lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. So no-fault divorce, that's what they were asking about. And he answered, haven't you read that he who created you from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer one flesh, but two. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so they said, well, then why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce to her and send her away? And Jesus said, that was because of the hardness of your hearts. Moses allowed divorce because of that, but it wasn't so from the beginning. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And so he agreed that Moses had allowed them to write a certificate of divorce, but that was permitted, but it wasn't advised. It was not the will of God. It was only done to protect the people that were innocent and just being left. Some of these men were just leaving their wives. And when they would do that, and that woman was still bound to another, she couldn't go home to her father. She couldn't provide a living for herself. And so this was to protect her so that if a woman didn't cheat, a man had to actually go in front of the elders and say, hey, she hasn't cheated on me, but I just don't want to be with her anymore. And this kind of held him to account. And then if he still did it, then it gave her a legal way to go back home and be taken care of by our family. This was never an endorsement of divorce. It was just something that was required for these men that were casting their women aside for no reason. It was never God's intention. But it was permitted if Someone did cheat and there was no possible way of reconciliation. It was permitted, but again, not encouraged. The intention is always for reconciliation, always for the man and the woman to stay together until they die. When he talks about a union, a joining together, he says that the two became one flesh That means we're not supposed to be able to be separated anymore. We're no longer, when we get married, we're no longer he and she. We are us. We take on one last name, and now we're the Gilmers. And then when a couple joined together physically and created a child, then they took part of each one of those people and joined each separate person and made one new person with the characteristics of that. And so a child is the physical manifestation of this union, this joining of the two making one. The uniting of two people was meant to be a permanent bond that couldn't be broken until then. And so I want to end with Malachi 2, 14 to 16. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, This man covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves in the spirit and don't be faithless. So what God has joined together, let no man separate, right? We are going to do the second part of this in a separate episode. That way this one doesn't get too long. And so please make sure that you go and listen to this next one because this one is 
talking about our relationship with our spouse, which is very, very important. But the next one is talking about our relationship to God. And that one is obviously the most important relationship that we have. So I hope that you've been encouraged today to stay faithful, that you see why God made marriage to be a forever union. I hope that it encourages you to think on all the reasons that you love your spouse today, all of the things that made you fall in love and that keep you in love. And if you're struggling, I hope that it encouraged you to either draw your thoughts to your spouse or to confess your sin or to mend that relationship that's already been broken. Remember that God can rebuild and repair, that he heals the brokenhearted, that he makes beauty from ashes. So whatever situation you're in, be encouraged that God can take care of it. Maybe you've already been divorced and you haven't been married to anyone else. Your spouse hasn't been married to anyone else and you need to reconcile with them. Ask God to help you with that. You know, that that spouse may not be willing at this moment, but ask God to help you. Maybe you're in a situation where you're already remarried. Okay, what you did before, that's the past. You can't undo it. Don't even try. Confess that sin. Put it behind you. Know that Jesus died for that. And then just move on. Be faithful to this spouse. Love them. Grow your marriage. Join yourself to them. Make yourself one in all the ways that you know how. And then lastly, maybe you're not married yet. Maybe you're listening to this and you haven't found your spouse yet. Stay faithful. Stay faithful to that person that you don't even know yet. That's encouragement to you. God wants you to have a glorious union with one man or woman one day. And so I want that for you. If you've already messed that up, again, can't do anything about that now. God does redeem. He can give you a wonderful marriage. And so just be faithful to your spouse from now on. These are all the things that we can learn. The point of it is understanding the sacred union, knowing why God set it up this way, caring about that, and striving to be one in all the ways that you know how. Asking God to help you. Growing your marriage. Growing your family. And letting it give your kids a good foundation. So we're going to stop today. Next week, we will talk about how being faithful to our spouse helps us to be faithful to the Lord what this commandment has to do with our relationship with him. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that episode. Leave me a five-star review, comments, wherever you're listening. You can also email me. My email address is found on my website, livethroughjesus.com. I'd also love it if you'd stay there for a minute, read the blog post, sign up for the free five-week Bible study. All my social media links are there too. So you can find everything you need on the website. So make sure you go over there and then I'll see you guys next episode for how this commandment pertains to God. So thanks and have a good day.